Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Greetings, fellow Dai Kaiju fans, and welcome back once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and I am glad you joined us today. We've got a real good episode coming up. We're going to be talking about a very popular and well-received uh, film from the Hesai era of the Godzilla series, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. I hope you enjoyed our last episode where myself and Mr. Bill Lomax talked about Ultraman, the first two episodes of the classic Ultraman series. And I do want to address the audio on that. Uh, Mr. Lomax's audio was, was very scratchy and distorted in the final mix, and I apologize for that. I know I've gotten some complaints about that, and a lot of that was a microphone issue on, on his side, and we, we did our best to clean it up and make it presentable, and the result really wasn't all that great from an audio standpoint, and for that, I apologize. However, I do want to thank uh, Mr. Lomax for being on the show because I thought he brought a lot to the show. I really liked the discussion. That's why I didn't want to re-record it. We had such, we had such a good rapport and, and we had so much good back and forth, I didn't want to re-record it after we already recorded it. I thought the show came out really good from a content standpoint. Uh, we've been working on getting his microphone issues fixed and uh, Lomax will be back on the show to talk some more Ultraman. Um, in the coming months, we'll see. I'm, I'm, you know, we got to figure out a, a schedule that works for both of us. And you know, it's hard going from a solo show like this show to try and uh, team up with somebody because the solo show, I figure out, okay, if I can carve out some time to record it, I can go ahead and do it. I don't need to coordinate with anybody else's schedule except, you know, my wife and my kids. And uh, you know, the kids go to bed relatively early. So, all, uh, all of that having been said. Like I said, today we're going to be taking a look at Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, and uh, we're going to get right into this Hesai classic right after we take a quick break. That one there? Yes. It's King Ghidorah. It's gigantic, and it's got two heads. Well, originally it had three. Three? That's right. It lost one when it fought Godzilla. You mean King Ghidorah fought Godzilla? Yes, in the 20th century. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The film we're taking a look at this time out is Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah was released in December of 1991 in Japan and was directed by Kazuki Omori and is the third film in the Hesai series following Godzilla, uh, 1985, otherwise known in Japan, of course, as Return of Godzilla, and then 1989's Godzilla vs. Biolanti, both of which, of course, we've covered on this show, and if you go check out some back episodes, you can uh, find out about those. Our story begins in the future, as a trio of unknown individuals examine the corpse of the monster King Ghidorah laying at the bottom of the sea. Back in the present, a strange UFO arrives in the skies over Japan and lands on Mount Fuji. The JSDF investigates and are met by a trio of Earthlings from the 23rd century. Meanwhile, 
Terasawa, an author, is investigating a lead about what may be the true origin of Godzilla. It seems that during World War II, a group of Japanese soldiers stationed on Lagos Island in the South Pacific. One of the survivors of this garrison claims that they were saved from the Americans by a dinosaur who scattered their foes on the beach. Lagos would go on to be blasted by an H-bomb test ten years later, mere months before Godzilla first appeared. Back at the UFO, the Futurans, as they are called, claim that they want to save Japan from destruction by Godzilla by removing him from the time stream. Providing a copy of Terasawa's unwritten book about the origins of Godzilla as proof of the theory, they set out to travel back to Lagos Island in 1944 and remove the so-called Godzillasaurus from the island before it becomes Godzilla. The mission is led by the future in Amy Kano and the super android M11, and also includes Terasawa, Professor Mizaki, a dinosaur expert, and our favorite psychic, Mickey Segusa. The team travels back in time to Lagos during the war, landing right before the Americans attack. They observe Yasuaki Shindo, the commander of the Lagos garrison, who back in the present is a powerful elite businessman. When the Japanese counterattack the Americans' uh, assault the next day, the battle is interrupted by the appearance of a lumbering sauropod. Outnumbered and low on resources, Shindo orders the Japanese forces to hold, while the Americans attack, but they're driven back to the beach and slaughtered to the man by the beast. The dinosaur, however, suffers seemingly mortal wounds. Shindo pays tribute to their fallen ally, thanks him for their sacrifice, saying that he is too big to take with them as the garrison abandons Lagos. M11 uses their time ship to teleport God the Godzillasaurus to the Bering Sea, and the threat of Godzilla is seemingly ended. But unknown to the others, Emmy leaves a trio of genetically engineered designer pets named Dorats behind on the island. The group returns to the present, and what do they find? No, not Godzilla. It's King Ghidorah who is ravaging Japan. The other Futurans reveal their plan to Emmy to level Japan to the ground in order to prevent it from becoming the dominant single force on Earth in the future, having bought up most of the rest of the planet. Leaving the Dorats on Lagos was how they created King Ghidorah. Emmy turns on her fellow Futurans and throws him with the heroes, reprogramming M11 along the way to help her. Powerless against King Ghidorah, the monster tries to figure out a solution to the problem. Mickey Segusa feels Godzilla's psychic presence in the Bering Sea, despite the fact that he should not exist. Terasawa discovers that a Russian submarine sunk there previously, creating Godzilla again in the present. Now, as an aside, this is how they sidestep the temporal wonkiness. Godzilla was not created in 1954, he was created here, so that's how he's here to be in Return of Godzilla and Godzilla vs. Violent. Now, how this addresses the history in Return of Godzilla, I don't know, and time travel makes my head hurt. So, let's just move on, shall we? Shindo sends his super-secret nuclear-powered submarine to investigate, but Godzilla destroys it and grows even more powerful, landing on Japanese soil to battle the King of Terror. Said battle is fierce, with both combatants gaining the advantage back and forth. Godzilla eventually gets the upper hand for good, blowing off King Ghidorah's center neck and blasting a hole in one of his wings, leaving the Golden Dragon laying at the bottom of the Japan Sea. Godzilla also destroys the UFO before the Futurans can escape back to their time. The threat 
to Japan, though, is not over. This new Godzilla is not the benevolent beast from Lagos, and he goes forth to destroy Japan mostly because he can. In Tokyo, Shindo refuses to evacuate, using on the irony of the dinosaur who will bring about this prosperity to Japan, now destroying it. Shindo then commits seppuku via Godzilla's atomic fire. When all seems lost, from the shimmering sky emerges the monstrous cybernetic form Mecha King Ghidorah. Powdered by Emmy and M11, the two monsters clash once again. Godzilla's beam causes severe damage to the cyborg, but Emmy is able to use the Godzilla grip. Four electrified cables which fire from the beast's torso, plus a giant grabber claw like a UFO claw game from its chest to snare the foe and carry him out to sea. Taking an atomic beam blast at point-blank range, both monsters crash into Japan's sea, with Emmy and M11 barely escaping. They say goodbye to their friends in the 20th century and return home. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the sea, Godzilla stirs. His spines flash and he roars his defiance, not as defeated as the world would like to think. And that is our story. Now this uh, is a very, kind of an interesting departure from what had come already in the Hesai series. With Return of Godzilla and then Godzilla of Biolanti, we had an attempt to sort of add levels of realism to the Godzilla series which sounds silly, but, you know, if you've seen those films, you know what I'm talking about. This one, none of that. I mean, the first scene is in the future, and then the second scene is a UFO landing in uh, in Japan. I mean, it's in the first two minutes. We're in straight sci-fi land here. Other thing worth noting about these opening scenes is that Akira Ifukube is back with the score. And I like the scores to Return of Godzilla and Godzilla's Violante, but this is just classic. And if you're bringing back King Ghidorah, then uh, you have to have Akira Ifukube. Let me take a moment now and talk about pronunciation. I said on the very first episode of this show that because these monsters are Japanese and being translated into English, there's different ways to pronounce their names. King Ghidorah is probably the to me, one of the most egregious, because Toho really, really wants, and some people really, really like, this pronunciation as King Ghidorah, with the hard Gi and Dora, like Dora the Explorer, at the end of it. And I never liked that. I always preferred the way he was called in the Showa era, which was King Ghidorah. You know? Not Ghidorah, but Ghidorah. So... It's an emphasis issue. Where do you put the emphasis? On which syllable, so to speak? And as you probably heard as I was reading my summary, it's hard. It's like the word nuclear. It's it's hard to say Ghidorah and Ghidorah because they, depending on how your sentence is flowing, either one can come out. I don't like the, the hard Ghidorah. Ghidorah, I guess, is okay. I prefer King Ghidorah, but what do you know? It We all know who we're talking about. One thing that this film is also known for is the seemingly anti-American sentiment that exists in parts of it. Uh, this was fairly controversial at the time. And this again builds on what we talked about in our Godzilla vs. Biolanti episode, talking about the return of nationalism to Japan. Um, besides the fact that we're, we're getting to see a lot of the war, of World War II, and let me tell you something, for films that are all spawned on the idea of the atomic bomb, they very rarely directly reference the war and never show it in the Showa era. So actually seeing a World War II battle is very, very strange. Um, it's it's just unusual. It's just not something you, you see in this series, and it's not something we really see again anytime soon. 
And even beyond that, of course, the Futurin's plot is to destroy Japan in the present so that they don't buy up all of South America and Africa and become bigger than the, all the other superpowers by the 22nd century. So this can be seen as, as sort of both anti-American and pro-Japanese nationalism. I don't know that it really is as anti-American as some people like to maybe project onto it. I think there's a, the nationalism I think is legitimate, but again, I don't have a particular problem with that. It makes for an interesting story. I mean, uh, yeah, it might be tooting your own horn a little bit, but you know, every place is entitled to think that their country's the greatest one on earth. So I'm okay with that. We get some interesting characters in this one. Terasawa, our de facto hero, is kind of ineffectual. I don't really care for him that much. He, uh, he repeatedly makes some stupid moves, including trying to have a fistfight with an android. Emmy thankfully stops him from that one, but later he tries to kick an android in the groin and hurts his foot. It's like he's an android. What do you really think is going to happen? Um, Emmy Sagusa is really only in the film a little bit. You know, her roles would increase and decrease as the, as the Hesai films went on. This is a relatively light one for her. She's mostly there to figure out that Godzilla's still alive in the present. Um, we do get her hanging, you know, uh, sitting, looking out the window of a helicopter trying to find Godzilla. This is a very common scene with Mickey Segusa being in an, a helicopter looking out the window trying to find Godzilla. You know, we, we saw it in Godzilla vs. Biolanti, and we will see it again before the Hesai films end. The most interesting character is Emmy, the Futurin, who ends up turning on her uh, fellow Equal Environment Earth Union uh, uh, lackeys and joining the side of the Angels. Uh, this Equal Environment Earth Union, their goal is for all countries on Earth to have equal influence. It's like, okay. She also has an absolutely great line just when she's telling Terasawa about the Earth Union. Most of them are very liberal, some even radical. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a kind of stupid liberal mindset. Every country on Earth having equal uh, influence. It's like, that's just strange. Really just strange. But uh, And then, of course, we get the android M11, who he's got some really strange and silly special effects that show him running really fast, but they're really kind of quaint. They make me smile more than anything else. And the other odd thing is when he uses his super speed, the music sounds almost like a surf rock song. It's like Dick Dale and the Dale Tones came in here to play a few tracks on the soundtrack. It's just it's It just stands out. I mean... I don't know how else to say it. There is a neat scene where, after M11 is in a car crash, where we get a kind of riff on uh, Terminator 2, where you know he's got some of his face peeled away, and we can see the mechanical uh, bits underneath on his face and his arm. The characters are, are a good bunch. I mean, like I said, Emmy and M11 the most interesting, and Emmy's a good character because she, you know, she comes back with the future, and she believes in the that they're trying to help Japan, and she goes along with it. I mean, she leaves the Dorats in on Lagos, which begs the question, why did she do that? What did she think leaving the Dorats there on Lagos was going to do? That's never addressed at all. It's like she believes that they're moving Godzilla to save Japan. Fine, okay, they did that. But what does leaving the Dorats accomplish? I've always wondered about that. and We've never gotten an answer from any real source that I've known about what the Dorats were, were going to be. The Dorats are, are, are <laughs> they're, they're like little super deforms come to life. It's uh, basically picture uh, a super deformed King Ghidorah and then give him only one head and make him about mm, six inches tall and give him like big baby face eyes 
and make them squeak, 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 and then you get a Dorat, and there's three of them. And uh, actually, a funny soundtrack bit, when we first see the Dorats, we hear King Ghidorah's theme, but it's played like little tinkle, tinkle, tinkle sound, so it sounds very cutesy. Uh, I thought that was a nice touch. If you're not listening for it, you, you, I mean, I missed it the first couple of times, and I finally heard it. It's like, oh, it's King Ghidorah's theme, so that was, uh, that was a neat thing. Um, Monsters play big roles once they show up and in that sense this is also a throwback to the Showa series that there's a lot of human stuff going on uh, we do get the scene with the Godzilla Saurus relatively early but you know it's still uh, I mean it's still a good half an hour into the film and then you know uh, King Ghidorah doesn't show up until 48 minutes or so into the film and then Godzilla doesn't appear until after the hour Godzilla proper you know doesn't really appear until after the hour mark so it it is in a way kind of like some of the old Showa films which had a lot of story going on besides the monster stuff especially I'm thinking more of the first half of the Showa films not so much some of the later ones where they just threw monsters at you because they knew that's what the kids wanted to see but they're, you know, the monsters are well realized, so it's, you know, they're, uh, when they're on screen, obviously they command everyone's attention. And the human stuff is, is interesting, so we don't get, we don't get bored with it. We don't start, man, I wish Godzilla would show up. You know, we're, we're following along with the story, and it's a good story, so. Um, the effects are overall really, really good. They build on the same type of work that was done in the previous two Hesai films using combinations of suitmation, uh, detailed cable-driven puppets, and uh, various other techniques. The only real effect that stands out as not being all that great is there's a dogfight sequence with um, a, a squadron of F-15s fighting against King uh, Ghidorah and it, it, it really just looks kind of stiff and staged, and it's very clear that the models are on a big rotating wheel because of the way they're flying. Uh, King Ghidorah is very, very stiff in that sequence, which is disappointed because when he's normally flying, they have this really nice articulated flying puppet where the wings flap and the heads move, and it looks really dynamic, and it moves really fast, too. There's, there's a couple, there's one shot, actually there's one shot in the dogfight where the last remaining jet is being chased down by King Ghidorah, and it's he's, it just really shows the speed very nicely. I, I like that. But, you know, beyond that, the dogfight scene's kind of, if you'll pardon the pun, a dog. Uh, but overall, the effects are really good. Uh, King Ghidorah's uh, not... How do I put this? The Showa King Ghidorah, a lot of times his heads would kind of just flail around and bob around, and, uh, you know, it gave him this kind of dynamic, crazy look. Here, the heads are more under control, more like you would expect from an actual living creature. Uh, they, they, you know, they do flop around a little bit, but they're not flailing. And uh, he's much tighter with his use of the gravity beams. One of the things we saw a lot in the show films, we saw this in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, uh, the which you can hear on the very second episode of Earth Destruction Directive, was that because his heads were flailing around so much, the gravity beams would be flying off in all different directions when they animated him. Here, they're much more focused, and they, they seem more deliberate in the things that he's targeting with them, which I, I really liked. Godzilla is, if you believe it, even beefier than he was in Godzilla vs. Biolanti, and he was already muscular and quite uh, ripped in that film. The idea being that because he absorbed additional modern nuclear material, he's even more powerful than he was in the last two films, and he really looks the part. Again, really good uh, articulation on the rod-driven puppets and cable-driven puppets for his face. Um, we get um, eyelids 
for Godzilla this time out, which was an interesting design choice. He blinks a couple of times, including once when him and Shindo are having their stare down before uh, Shindo commits seppuku. Uh, there's a couple of good reaction shots. You know, we get real good articulation of the neck and the jaw, and overall just looks fantastic. The suit is, I'd say, right up there with the Biogoji suit as being the most popular from this period. Um, I'd also throw the, the burning Godzilla suit from Destroya, but that's more just for the look than necessarily the suit, which isn't that different from the Space Godzilla suit. Uh, but it, it looks really good. Uh, the fight, the first fight between Godzilla and King Ghidorah is in, appropriately enough, just out in a wooded area, which is, uh, again, more Showa throwback right there. And uh, they just go back and forth. It's not as brutal and visceral as the second fight between Godzilla and Biolante from the previous film, but it's up there. I mean, they are, I mean, yeah, there's some beams being thrown back and forth, but then they fight Tooth and Claw also. Uh, King Ghidorah has a really good flying kick at one point, where uh, he takes off flying and then just, uh, you know, hits Godzilla with both of his feet right into Goji's chest and takes him down. Um, then he, uh, he lands on him and stomps on him, flying, jumping up and down, stomping on him, almost like he did to Anguirus and destroy all monsters. Godzilla gets his shots in, too. Uh, we, of course, get the um, a shot of him grabbing King Ghidorah's tails, both his tails, and then picking him up and slamming him to the ground. Now, holding him his tails like that, when I see it, I think of the end of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which has Godzilla doing the same thing, while Rodan and Mothra attack him from the front. Now, of course, in that film, he doesn't pick him up and slam him to the ground like a wrestler, but, you know, that's, hey, that was the 60s, this is the 90s. No, was the 90s. We also get the really, really iconic image, uh, which was immortalized on the poster for this film, which is King Ghidorah actually grappling with Godzilla and trying to strangle him with his center neck wrapped around Godzilla's uh, throat. Just really a great image, and, you know, King Ghidorah never used his body like that in a physical way. You know, he would do things where he would fly into people and, you know, uh, crash into them, uh, there's a great scene, of course, in, in Ghidorah where him and Rodan, where he crashes straight into Rodan. Uh, but, you know, actually using his heads like that and his necks as an offensive-style weapon, that was pretty neat, and that was a unique thing for him at the time. Now we don't really think about it because this film kind of made it um, obvious. Uh, whereas, really, it hadn't happened much before. We also get to see him actually using his uh, his jaws and biting and attacking. And we'd only really seen that in Destroy All Monsters, and even then, it was mostly just to get Anguirus off of him. You know, he's King Gator is not known as a, a tooth-and-claw monster. He's known as a beam monster, you know, flying over the battlefield, shooting gravity beams everywhere. But seeing him really mix it up really put him over. Interesting thing also is the size and the scale. Now, remember, Godzilla is bigger than he was because he absorbed the modern uh, nuclear radiation. But when him and King Ghidorah have their standoff before the fight, King Ghidorah still towers over him. He still towers over him. So how damn big is this guy? You know, it's 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 amazing. I mean, all the monsters are conveniently about the same size, but even then, King Ghidorah is bigger. <laughs> And of course we do get the uh, first decapitation in a Godzilla film as uh, Godzilla uses the nuclear pulse to get King Ghidorah off of him and then uses his atomic breath to blow his center head clean off. And uh, this of course is referenced in the uh, the opening scene where it says, oh, King Ghidorah with two heads? And he goes, well, he used to have three. 
you know <laughs> it's like yikes and that i mean that's just uh king Ghidorah getting his head blown off that's just crazy you know i mean especially someone like me grew up watching the showa Ghidorah films and to see him you know just boom it's like damn you know, this new Godzilla is not playing around, you know. Not that the one from BioAnti was playing around, but this one, he's he's out for keeps. And plus, he also blows a hole straight through King Ghidorah's wings. I always thought that, uh, you know, the, the kind of bat membrane-looking wings that King Ghidorah had, they should be a weak spot. You know, they're not as uh, as tough as Rodan's wings. So I, it, I liked that when I saw it. It's like, well, that makes sense, you know. It always seemed odd that his wings looked kind of fragile, but they were so tough, you know. So it's good, you know, good to see that. Um, another interesting thing is when, and again, more throwbacks to the Showa uh, period, is when Godzilla is on the attack, Mazer tanks show up out of absolutely nowhere with no explanation given whatsoever. They just kind of roll in there and start shooting, and they're as ineffective as they've always been ever since that one time that they worked in War of the Gargantuas. And that, to me, is just such a Showa aspect, just having this amazing technology. As I said on Mystery Science Theater 3000, thanks for abiding by all those disarmament treaties, Japan, you know. And yeah, I, I, and I recognize that in uh, Return of Godzilla and Godzilla's Biolanti, they had the Super X and the Super X2, but they went to great lengths to explain those and to try and show them in a realistic manner and to say, oh, well, this is armed with you know this type of armor and cadmium missiles because it's designed to repel a nuclear attack, and the fire mirror behaves like this because it's made of artificial diamonds and it can resist this much heat and reflect this much energy. These tanks just roll on up and open fire, and then retreat. You know, as as the JSDF does in many such show of films, and in this film, so that that really made me smile. I'd, I, it's like that's just so great. It's such an iconic image, and they look really good. Uh, the attack takes place at, at uh, kind of twilight, kind of dusk, and so the lighting is real dramatic, and um, it's just really really nice. I really like that scene of, uh, of Godzilla in. Uh, He's in Shinjuku. No, he's in Sapporo. Excuse me. He's in Sapporo. And then he moves to Shinjuku. Uh, actually, the scene in Shinjuku has its own uh, interesting uh, scene where, you know, uh, in the lead-in, there people are being advised to, you know, get out of the city and stay out of buildings and go underground if possible. Well, Godzilla takes a step and actually he collapses into the underground into the Japanese subway, which I thought was neat. It's like, there are subways all over Tokyo now. It's like, there would be parts that would collapse under his weight. So we get to see a big uh, Godzilla foot coming down on a uh, subway staircase. I thought that was a a neat touch. Then we get Mecha King Ghidorah. Now, this this is uh, uh, either insane or brilliant, depending on how you look at it, because you're taking already one of the most popular monsters in the series, and now you're making a cyborg version of him. And it's like, that's just designed to sell toys, and models, and uh, posters, and vinyls, and it did, and my god, this thing is well realized. Also interesting, this is the first piloted robot in the Toho Godzilla series. We had had robots before, because we had had uh, the original Mogra, and we had had Jet Jaguar, and uh, I think there might be there any other robots? Are there any other robots? I'm not thinking of any off the top of my head. Uh, and we had had androids before. You know, we had had uh, uh, the girl from Planet X and, uh, 
you know, we had had M11 in this film, but we had never had an actual robot that was piloted until this point. You know, Mechagodzilla, I can't believe I didn't say Mechagodzilla, I'm an idiot. Mechagodzilla was controlled, but in the first Mechagodzilla film, he was controlled remotely by a computer, and then in the second one, they implanted the cybernetic controls in Katsura's head. Mechagodzilla was never piloted like a uh, super robot, or a real robot if you're into anime, would be until 1993. So this is the first piloted robot in the Godzilla series, which is, it seems like such a common thing among, especially tokusatsu, to have a piloted robot. I mean, when you look at, you know, the the Super Sentai, we're doing piloted robo, f- you know, from pretty much as soon as they got giant robots. So, but it took a long time to get it into Godzilla series. It's less of a thing you see in uh, Daikaiju film and TV, just because of the nature of Daikaiju film and TV, you know, it tends to be more, um, you know, monsters fighting rather than giant robots fighting monsters. It, you know, you're when when you're splitting hairs between those types of genres, it's it's time just to relax. You know, that's what I need to do. But anyway, the the Mecha King uh, Ghidorah is just a neat, neat looking uh, monster. The center head is of course uh, cybernetic. We've got an armor plate on the chest, um, hydraulics on the wings, and uh, Emmy is in the cockpit driving the thing. And uh, Actually, I remember the first time I saw Mecha King Ghidorah was actually before I saw this film. Now, for a long time, the latest Godzilla film I had, because they weren't readily available, I mean, you're talking, this is the, uh, you know, the early 90s, you know, the, these films were like legend over in, in the States, um, was, the, but the latest film I had was Godzilla vs. Biolanti, taped off of HBO, and when the first line of the Trendmasters Godzilla toys came out, I want to say it was for my, it must have been for my birthday because it was the summer. My, you know, my my dad got me all six monsters from the line, which was um, Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, uh, King Ghidorah, Mechagodzilla, the uh, Hesai Mechagodzilla, and then Mecha King Ghidorah. So that was the first time I actually saw Mecha King Ghidorah was as a toy. So I was like, whoa, you know, and they have his description on the little card that came with him. They explain that, you know, he was, you know, rebuilt from the defeated King Ghidorah and came back to fight Godzilla. I'm like, that is so cool. And he doesn't disappoint. The little, uh, I mean, the fight is only a couple of minutes, but it's just really well done. I like that uh, they they treat the Mecha King Ghidorah as a piloted machine in that uh, Emmy uses the beams strategically you know she she knocks Godzilla down and then she levels the top of a skyscraper with it to bury him to attempt to bury him under rubble I thought that was a really good use of the fact that it is in fact a piloted robot so let's let's show it as such and then of course the Godzilla grip uh it, we'd get to see something very similar to this uh with the Mechagodzilla in 1993 which is appropriate because uh, spoilers: The Hesai Mechagodzilla was built from the remains of Mecha King Ghidorah. Uh, I I love cables that shoot out of things and shock people. I don't know why. I think it's a hilarious trope, and I love when it's used on giant monsters because it's just there seems like so many other ways to do this, but this one is just the coolest way to do it, and that alone makes it. Uh, it gets a thumbs up from me as far as putting that on your giant three-headed cyborg robot from the future. And then you add the giant claw that comes out of the chest. And like I said, it looks like a grabber claw. You know, like the Martians from Toy Story worship the claw. 
Uh, same idea. It just reaches out and grabs Godzilla right around the stomach. And it's it's like, yeah, go with it. He's a cyborg. Let's put some cyborg weapons on there. And and it just it really looks it's it's to me that's every bit as iconic an image as the um, you know King Ghidorah getting his his neck wrapped around Godzilla's throat. That to me is when I think of Godzilla vs King Ghidorah. Those are the two images I think of. And I love the Godzilla grip. And then the way that it goes from there, Godzilla still is fighting back and he blasts King Mech King Ghidorah at point blank with the beam, and then they both crash. And the crash of these they must have had some fun on this on this film as far as doing the effects because there's this part and when King Ghidorah first crashes into the the sea where they must have just taken these puppets and just dropped them into the effects tank and the impacts look really good you know I understand water doesn't scale but in this sense where it's just boom impact on the surface tension of the water it really looks you can you can really feel that you can really feel that impact and so uh, that's really good, especially, like I said, when it's Mecha King Ghidorah and Godzilla crashing into the uh, into the the sea together. It's just a uh, well done, well done shot, and a good climax to a well done fight. Uh, there are some parts of this film that are a little grating and haven't aged all that well. The U.S. sailors, uh, when they go back to 1944, we get a little bit of a scene with two uh, U.S. sailors talking, I guess on a, I guess it's a destroyer, uh, and they, they see the uh, the timeship, and they assume it's a UFO, and they talk about it back and forth. Uh, and part of it is, again, trying to write dialogue in English um, with a, mo- you know, with a mostly, ja- with an entirely Japanese cast, and they just sound so stupid. They sound so stupid. And, and it's, again, it, it's, you know, is it intentional? I don't know. I mean, part of this is, is that it's dubbed, and so the dubbing is not that great for the American characters. And, but, you know, part of it is that the dialogue itself is, is terrible also. So uh, it's best best skipped over. Ironically, on the for a long time, I had this as a... a v- <laughs> Stay with me. A VHS copy of a... Hong Kong bootleg laserdisc. You know it was the 90s when you had to go through that. The odd thing about it is that the there is some dialogue in English that was dubbed into um, Cantonese and then the subtitles removed. So for a long time I had no idea what the American soldiers were saying in this film. Not a clue. And there is a joke where the um, the captain uh, you know, says something to about a, you know uh, to his uh, his his subordinate about oh well you can tell it to your kids Major Spielberg and it's like uh <laughs> you got to realize this is when Jurassic Park was in pre-production and uh, it's oh, not not a good joke not a good joke at all. Um, the other strange thing about the Godzillasaurus is that he starts out with Rodan's roar, which, in and of itself, is not strange. I mean, Rodan was a uh, a dinosaur, right? So it makes sense one dinosaur having another dinosaur's roar. I can dig that. The really strange part comes after they get to the beach, and the Godzillasaurus starts becoming wounded, and then his roar changes to Gamera's. 
I am not making this up. I do not know why his roar becomes Gamera's all of a sudden. It is so strange to hear that coming out of a Godzilla monster in a Godzilla movie. It's you. It's like, because the first thing you're like, what the hell was that? And they that's Gamera! And let me tell you, that would have taken the film on a whole other turn if Gamera had shown up to save the Godzillasaurus. Um, I mean, that, that just has fanfic written all over it. Somebody out there get on that. So, uh, <laughs> see, this is you know, when you do a Daikaiju podcast. Sometimes your mind wanders, and you find yourself in situations like that. So, um, overall, it's it's just a really good, entertaining movie. I mean, that's that's all you can really say about Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. It it actually. Oh, one other thing. One other thing. I did notice this. I mentioned the talking about the effects generally being very good. This film actually won a Japanese Academy Award for special effects. So that's pretty neat. I didn't know that they uh, did fill, uh, awards like that for special effects in Japan. So that's pretty cool. Makes me wonder if the Godzilla series has won any more. I'll have to do some research on that. But uh, you know, getting back to to wrapping up, this is a really enjoyable, really fun film. And after God, uh, Godzilla vs. Biolante didn't, you know, light up the box office the way that Return of Godzilla did, and even Return of Godzilla wasn't nearly as successful, I think, as they wanted it to be, which is why it took four years for Biolante to get made. This is a complete throwback. You know, there was all these talks and plans about doing all these different things and introducing new monsters, but at the end of the day, they went back to what worked, and what worked was Godzilla fighting King Ghidorah. And that's what we get here. This is an unabashedly science fiction film. Um, there's it, you know, there's 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 jetpacks and and uh, androids and cyborg monsters and time travel and teleportation and uh, laser gunfights um, and you know dinosaurs fighting soldiers. There's a little bit of War That Time Forgotten there. Wow, I never really put that together until right now that there's a War That Time Forgot segment in this film. And uh, folks that know me know I love the War That Time Forgot from DC Comics, some classic monsters or dinosaurs fighting soldiers. But that's a whole other can of worms I'm not going to get into. Um, and and it's, it's just worth watching. And this one is a good one for a casual fan because it's got a good kind of kooky sci-fi plot. It's got two monsters you know. Uh, nothing too heady that you really got to think about, like the uh, you know some of the ambiguous stuff and the controversial stuff, and so, like we saw in Return of Godzilla and um, Godzilla vs. Biolante. It's it's just a good film. It, is it the best film in the Hesai era? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, I tend to lean towards some others over this one, but every time I watch it, I'm entertained. Every time I watch it, I'm entertained and I enjoy myself and I just have fun. And Again, it's Daikaiju. It should be fun. I'm not saying you can't tell serious stories in Daikaiju, but at the end of the day, it's guys in suits fighting in a scale city. And if you can't have fun with that, you know, go consult your physician. You know, uh, you know, paging Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, whatever. Um, now, this film is pretty readily available now in this country, unlike what it was when I was growing up. So uh, consider yourselves lucky. Um, the uh, you can um, it is available on DVD. I I want to say that Sony released it on a double feature DVD with Godzilla. Well, it's Godzilla versus Mothra. They call it Godzilla and Mothra: The Battle for Earth, which is the next film in the series. Uh, you also can. 
watch it for free on crackle.com which is how i watched it for uh for this podcast now the crackle uh app is well it's not an app but the, the crackle video player in the browser is pretty neat and you can go full screen with it the way they do it is that they have it broken up in a series of chapters and uh and they play a commercial and that's not so bad i mean i, I for free i'm willing to deal with that you know and especially since it's not every um it's not like it is watching it on television where it's every you know every five minutes there's three minutes of commercials and uh you know that that just gets old after a while um let's see i'm, I'm trying to look this up on netflix and see if it's available uh it should be available on netflix i think it i think you can still get it on dvd i don't see why you wouldn't be able to um yeah there it is uh yeah battle yeah there you can get it on on netflix it looks like so if you haven't seen this one go check it out pick it up from netflix watch it on crackle.com after you watch it on crackle go ahead and use the two true frinks after you watch it on crackle go uh check out the uh the two true freaks amazon.com link and pick it up on amazon and uh keep the lights on here um, but you know, just just check it out. And this is a, again a great film to get a, a bunch of guy, bunch of people over, and enjoy your favorite beverage and watch some uh, some Godzilla action. And like I said, can't go wrong with it. Everybody likes Godzilla. Everybody likes King Ghidorah. Putting them both together, what could possibly go wrong? So, all right. Now we are going to take a real quick break, and we'll be right back here on the Earth Destruction Directive. Mr. Shindo. But, sir, you must leave your office. Shouldn't you wait? <laughs> yes, I know that. But this is the way that I want it. Let me have it my way. I nearly died on Lagos Island, along with my entire garrison. But the dinosaurs saved us all. And all of that prosperity I built is <laughs> now being destroyed by the same dinosaur at this moment. And there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> it's very ironic, don't you think?
And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, now, normally in the show, we like to do our listener feedback, and hey, we've actually got some this time. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, I have an email here from my good friend, Mr. Sean Engel, and uh, Sean is, besides the one of my uh, fellow co-hosts on the Two True Freaks show, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, also the purveyor of the really, really fun, really good Green Lantern podcast, Just One of the Guys, which you can find at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. And uh, this is a Green Lantern podcast that focuses on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And I tell you what, I did not know anything about Guy Gardner and very little about Kyle Rayner. And I've really enjoyed this show and learning about these two characters, especially um, a lot about Guy Gardner's solo book which I had never read, but is, is a lot of fun, sounds like, and Sean's enthusiasm for it is, is infectious. So, subject is, only three minutes of giant robot fighting allowed? Insanity! It might be insane, but it was also uh, budget-friendly. So, The email begins, Hey Luke, I'm just writing in to provide a little feedback for the last episode. I really enjoyed getting to hear Lomax on the show. He was a nice addition who was enthusiastic about the subject as you are. Even with the problem with his audio, you could hear what he was talking about, and both of you covered the subject of the first two Ultraman shows well. They sound like a real blast. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed having uh, Mr. Lomax on the show, and and I said we've discussed uh, doing more Ultraman-centric episodes, the two of us together, so uh, hopefully we'll have our audio issues sorted out the next time we have them on. Sean continues, Sadly, I was never exposed to the Ultraman show. I did, however, watch another tokusatsu. I'm not certain if I spelled that right. And, uh, Sean, you did spell it right. The uh, thing about Japanese is that it's, especially Romanized Japanese, it can be hard to spell some things sometimes because there's only about one-fifth of the sounds that are in English. So a lot of words tend to sound very similar, but you spelled it right here. Uh, I was, I did watch another tokusatsu, Spectraman, and yes, I do remember Spectraman. During the early days of cable, Sean continues, when TBS was WTBS out of Atlanta, they used to show Spectraman just around 3 o'clock when I got home from school. My memories of it are somewhat vague, but I do remember it kind of mirrored the setup for Ultraman. Guy discovers baddies. Baddies unleash a giant monster. Guy becomes Spectraman. Fight, fight, fight! I know the plots were obviously more detailed than that, but it's been so long since I watched them that they have neither become lost in the ether of my memory. <laughs> I, I do remember Spectraman. I think I probably saw a couple episodes of it here and there on TBS or WTBS as, you, as it was back then. And uh, that show was that show was something else. And yes, it does follow the formula established by Ultraman, a very common formula for a lot of tokusatsu shows from the six, 60s, 70s, even you know the ones still coming out today. Still basically follow the same format. I mean, it works. You know, you only got 24 minutes, including your credits, to get this done. So uh, you gotta gotta work with what you got. Sean continues, and aside from that, the other tokusatsu I remember is Jet Jaguar from Godzilla vs. Megalon. This one I actually saw in the theater as a kid and loved the heck out of it. The king of monsters and a giant robot fighting side by side was more awesome than my young braid could handle. Sadly, Joel and the bots have made me reevaluate the movie, but it's still a fun one. Uh, yes, Godzilla vs. Megalon was one that I had very early on as a kid because when when I was growing up and for a long time, the movie was actually in the public domain here in the United States, so you could find VHS copies of it very, very cheaply. And I remember my copy of it had actually had, Me- had Mechagodzilla on the cover instead of Megalon, so that was a little disappointing when you, you think you're going to watch Mechagodzilla and it's Megalon. 
but uh, now I I'm Jet Jaguar. Actually, Jet Jaguar started out, and I don't want to get into this too much because we'll cover this when I do a Godzilla vs. Megalon episode. Jet Jaguar was designed as part of a contest for kids in Japan to design a superhero. And originally, Toho had planned to make a TV series based on a Jet Jaguar. But when that series fell through, they used him as Godzilla's ally in Godzilla vs. Megalon. So that's why he does kind of have that TV, you know, uh, ultra hero style to him. Toho had, a, had at least a couple others. Uh, that kind of fit this mold. Meteor Man was the main one. None of them were ever as popular as any of the Ultra Heroes. And I, I do just want to mention one thing, and and this, again, may be something I just haven't talked about so much on the show. Uh, you say the only other tokusatsu I remember was Jet Jaguar. Well, tokusatsu is a word that actually just means, literally translated, special filming. And what it means in, in context is a live-action special effects show much like we would call a Japanese animated show an anime, no matter what its subject matter, any live-action special effects show, no matter its subject matter, is a tokusatsu. Uh, To give some reference, when Star Trek was imported to Japan, it's considered a tokusatsu. Same with Doctor Who, same with um, Thomas the Tank Engine, because it was filmed with miniatures and later CG. Uh, you're not wrong, because Godzilla vs. Megalon is, in fact, a tokusatsu film, but uh, as far as the name of the genre, and we as nerds, we love love to classify things, and the Japanese are actually worse than, the Ameri- than we Americans are in this. They love to classify things. So, usually it's called either a daikaiju show, or uh, an ultra hero, or an ultra style show. Uh, most of the time they're just called daikaiju shows, or a lot of times online people call them an ultra style show. If it's not Ultraman himself, you know, something like Spectraman. Sean continues, Anyhow, I can't wait to hear your next show. Like most of the podcasts I listen to, this one makes me want to go out and check out the subject matter being discussed. Make sure to get Lomax back on the show as the two of you gelled really well. Chat with you later, Sean Engel. Well, Sean, thank you again for writing in. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I hope that, hey, you keep writing them, guys. I'll keep reading them. That goes out to everybody. Uh, And I'm glad that this podcast is getting you interested in checking out some of this stuff. I know that's how it goes with me, too. And a good thing, like I said, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, you can go watch it for free on Crackle.com. So be sure to check it out and email it in and give me your thoughts on it. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear another email. And, uh, you know, and and I'll, I'll send you, let me talk to you offline about something, uh, about dealing with Ultraman. So, just leave it like that for now. That's all our feedback for, uh, that we have for this episode. If you'd like to, uh, hear your name <laughs> and your comments read on Earth Destruction Directive, uh, the email address and the forum and the blog are all located in the outro of the show, which will be at the end tag following, uh, my segment here. And, okay, now, what are we going to talk about next time? Well, I think it's about time that we did some four-color action again. It's been a while since we've done some comic books. And what I'd like to do next time is get us caught up on the ongoing IDW Godzilla series. Now, we've talked about the first two issues, kind of as a special comment section, but I want to get us caught up. And my idea here is, is that if I can get the show back on a more regular schedule... I can do one or two issues of the comic every uh, episode and keep us up to date. That way I'm not doing these kinds of shows where I have to catch up a lot. I'd rather do that and then keep the miniseries separate. Uh, There's a current miniseries that is on just released, as I'm recording this, issue 4 of 5, which is called The Half-Century War by James Stokoe, which has just been phenomenal. I'd really want to talk about that as a single episode, much like I did with... 
Gangsters and Goliaths and Godzilla Legends. I think the miniseries work better as a single episode, so I'm not going to mention that, but we'll talk about the ongoing IDW miniseries. I'd also like to spend a little bit of time talking about the Marvel Shogun Warriors comic. Now, those of you who may not remember the Shogun Warriors, and uh, or maybe you're like me and were too <laughs> too young to remember them firsthand. Back in the 70s, it was uh, Mattel brought over, I think it was Mattel anyway, a lot of uh, Bandai giant robo toys to the U.S. and they called them, as a line collectively known as the Shogun Warriors. Well, I did not know this, but Marvel Comics actually held the license to do Shogun Warriors comics for a while, and the, the series ran in the um, mid-70s for 20 issues, so almost two years. And uh, I ended up finding the first one at Charlotte Minicon a couple weeks ago for two bucks, so I was like, oh, i got to pick this up. So uh, we'll definitely talk about that. I ended up getting the whole series off of eBay, so we'll talk about uh, a little bit of Shogun Warriors, a little super robot action for those of you into uh, anime more so than Toku. Um, but yeah, so we're going to do some comics next time, and uh, we might have some news. There's a lot of news coming up. Uh, we've got Pacific Rim, the Del Guillermo del Toro live-action giant mecha versus uh, Daikaiju live-action film coming up this year. There's been a lot of news breaking about that. We've had some news breaking about the uh, next year's live-action Godzilla, American Godzilla film. And so we'll probably talk about a little bit of that, and some folks have been asking me about that on the forum. And uh, now that we have some news to report, I'll talk about it some. And, and in fact, that reminds me, please go to the forum. Go to for www.forumforgeeks.com. Go down to the Two True Freaks section and check out the Earth Destruction Directive thread. We've got a lot of good discussion going on. Uh, Lomax and myself have been kind of running that thread. And uh, we'd love to hear from you, comments on the show, anything you want to talk about. We've got a new... Uh, we got some new stuff on there now. With um, I, I posted the links a couple of days ago to some new Tokusatsu that's being available on DVD here in the U.S. So anything you want to talk about that relates to giant monsters or you know people in cityscapes stomping around, just come on by and we'll talk about it. So with that, I'm gonna sign off. I hope everybody enjoyed the show, and until next time, keep them stomping. has been Earth Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forumforgeeks.com. And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com 
to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.